It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Keller McFall from the Newman University. And if you've heard my voice before on the podcast, you've probably heard it as in the role of the host of New Books and Genocide Studies. But I occasionally pinch hit on New Books and Sports, uh, and I'm doing that today. And, and today I'm thrilled to welcome James Druckmann and Elizabeth Shero to the show. Uh, and Jamie and Libby are the co-authors of a terrific new book, Equality Unfulfilled, How Title IX's Policy Design Undermines Change to College Sports, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, I've been reading about Title IX for a long time, and I found it very insightful. Uh, I have also uh, earmarked many of the pages of the bibliography. Uh, Libby and Jamie, you've given me lots to do over the summer. Uh, and I'm looking forward to talking with them about it. So welcome. Thanks for joining us on New Books and Sports. Thanks so Thank much for having us. us. So I always start by asking guests to just introduce themselves to the audience a little bit. So uh, Libby, I'll ask you to go first, and then Jamie. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you became interested in um, studying sports as an academic subject. Okay, uh, so yeah, I'm Libby Shero. I am an associate professor of public policy and history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And I, uh, I guess I came to thinking about sports and sports policy by having my own sort of personal journey with Title IX's implementation as an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota, where uh, where Jamie and I actually originally met, although maybe I'll let Jamie tell that part of the story. Um, but I, I was on a club rowing program uh, as an undergraduate in my first year uh, at the university, and they elevated that program to varsity level status. And so I was then sort of on really about a decade long journey, first as an athlete and then as a coach of of the program, really experiencing what was an intentional effort to implement uh, Title IX at the University of Minnesota. And that inspired for me what has really become a research agenda as an academic, but at the time was, you know, a series of questions as an undergraduate, then as a master's in public policy student, then finally as a doctoral student about the impacts and history of Title IX. 
Um, and so I've sort of been uh, in, uh, interested and intrigued by the meaning of that policy um, in American life and politics for a very long time. So we'll get into a lot of that, but I can yeah. probably end there for now. Thanks, Libby. Jamie, how about you? Yeah, thank you. Um, and thank you again for having us. Um, so I'm Jamie Druckmann. I'm a professor of political science at Northwestern University. And um, my interest in the topic probably stems back from growing up and, and participating in sports, but also having a, an early interest in just kind of the sociological aspects of sports. Um, so even kind of reading stories in the newspaper, um, even, even you know, in the 80s and 90s about different stories around sports and seeing some specials about how sports affect life. And kind of, I, I think at even an early age being a little perplexed and a little frustrated on how kind of sports struck me as at once ha having the ability to play such a positive influence in people's life, but at the other hand, um, also potentially having a calamitous influence on people's life, depending on how they were structured and, and kind of how people went about participation. And so I think I, I kind of always had that kind of underlying interest um, for those reasons. My specific interest in in kind of Title IX is, is thanks to Libby. Um, you know, I, I, I was aware of Title IX, but I, I didn't know a lot about it. And as Libby, we met, um, I, I think it was my first year on the faculty at the University of Minnesota, and Libby was a, um, an undergraduate in a class that I taught. Um, and um, she went on to write an extraordinary undergraduate thesis on, uh, on Title IX um, and kind of was having these experiences that she mentioned earlier. Um, and I, I was the second reader on the thesis, which I, I still have a copy of. And, you know, it just really sparked an interest in me because I, I think, you know, I had had this interest that I described before and kind of these tensions within sports and had known about Title IX, but had never really connected the two um, until I kind of kind of watched Libby's work and um, kind of heard of her experiences. So even beyond um, her, her, her thesis, we remained in, in contact because um, she went on, she didn't mention that she went on to subsequently then become a, a coach of the team for a few years. Um, and, and that kind of just hearing about this, the, the struggles of, of, of what she faced at, at what I imagine is probably one of the more progressive settings for implementing Title IX and for women's sports um, and still kind of facing many struggles. Um, and then just to jump ahead quickly, um, sometime in the 2010s, um, I, I started teaching a class on sports politics um, and Title IX was a, a large part of that. And Libby was a remarkable resource on helping me get up to speed on that and I, um, sharing information she had on that. And then that kind of evolved. We had continued, it, we had continued to have a relationship over all those years and, and kind of talk about some of these issues informally, but that kind of accelerated kind of a, a research partnership. Yeah, there weren't there there weren't and there still aren't too many folks uh, in political science thinking seriously about the politics of sport, and um, so I think Jamie and I have always been simpatico in that space. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun for me back. I think Jamie, when you started teaching that class, I was working on um, my dissertation, which uh, which ended up also being about Title IX. Although when I started my doctoral program, I really thought that I was going to be writing. Um, Probably about. I mean, I, I knew gender and politics was really my reason for for going on to a PhD, but um, I wasn't convinced necessarily that I was still going to stay in the domain of sort of sports related topics. 
facts, although it seemed very clear to me that the discipline thought that it had the story down about the meaning of Title IX and its role in um, the sort of relative success of second wave feminist policy initiatives. And yet there was very little interrogation of that narrative, much less support it. And so, uh, so, you know, as I was contemplating how to craft a doctoral dissertation, I sort of thought, okay, it, someone needs to write this. And I suppose it maybe needs to be me, <laughs> given the set of experiences um, and various forms of expertise that I have, policy interests. Again, I sort of contemplated going on and doing some sort of advocacy work with the master's degree, um, but had set that aside and decided that I wanted to um, to become a scholar in the field. And so, um, so having having an, another um, another interlocutor in that field or in that in that realm and with those interests has was really an important element of my career development too. Um, and then we were able to start to develop some of the research projects that have now become the book and the related articles um, over the next, I guess it's been about 13 years. So, so you mentioned that political scientists are not as prominent in this space as they might be. What, what does political science bring to the study of sports in Title IX that's different or distinctive compared to history or uh, other disciplines? Uh, Jamie, I'll just ask you to go first, but I imagine both of you might have something to say. Sure, yeah. Um, it is it is an interesting disciplinary issue insofar as most other social science disciplines seem to have subfields devoted to the study of sport. You know, for example, perhaps most notably the sociology of sports is a sizable, um, uh, has a sizable presence within the field of sociology. Um, in political science, um, for reasons that are only one could speculate it just never really developed or has not yet developed into a substantial number of scholars exploring sports. And I, I, I think it's surprising and in, 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 insofar as I think there are clear political elements to so many sports decisions. I mean, ranging from the government obviously plays a substantial role in overseeing and regulating sports. I mean, the origins of the NCAA came about through a, a, a meeting um, at the White House with the Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and so there, there's explicit involvement of governments at, at various different levels. Um, and then even beyond government, um, there's obviously a, a strong political aspect to, to sports, legal and political aspect to sports, you know, on, on a range of issues. I mean, Title IX obviously is an obvious example, um, given that it is law. Um, but, but, you know, other things such as kind of regulating the use of, of mascots, drug testing, um, labor negotiations and you know the list goes on and on and so there there are lots of lots of topics where politics play a clear role and one would like to think that political scientists have a, a good understanding of political contexts and how institutions in particular might shape behavior in those contexts that's what political scientists purportedly do um and so i i think that's the real leverage or comparative advantage of a political scientist is thinking about how institutions, formal or informal, uh, affect the implementation of different policies and the behavior and the domain of, of sports in this case. Yeah, all of that uh, is exactly right. You know, um, the politics of public policy is certainly a, at least a, a part of the work that pol political scientists do. I would say it's, you know, arguably less central to the field. Um, and certainly, I think related to that, maybe the sort of cultural politics or the politics of cultural spaces of which we might also think 
sports is sort of subsumed under um, is also relevant to the field, but also but often sort of relegated to the margins. Um, and so we we do sort of operate in some of those interstitial conversations that butt up against sociology, that butt up against um, cultural studies, but that also I think we hope to bring into conversation with some of the key questions that are of of central interest to political scientists that include the sort of questions around political behavior, but also, you know, questions around the role of the politics of public policy in shaping constituent opinions, that is to say, those who are the targeted populations of policy implementation for our purposes, right, in thinking about Title IX, that includes athletes, coaches, athletic administrators, that these folks are not merely sort of cultural actors. They are not merely uh, folks who are operate in the sort of recreational space of American culture. They are the objects and actors in our political landscape. And so some of this is about, has been a sort of active framing for the audience, um, the types of context that we see as germane to the questions um, of, of our discipline. But, but also I think, you know, it isn't just a disciplinary conversation. I think that is those are sort of useful framings for the American public to remember that when we are talking about the stakes of debates in college sports, we are not just talking about how well we allocate resources for recreational play. We are talking about how well we allocate public funds are allocated through often, especially at public universities, through processes that have to do with, you know, what we're doing with our taxes, what we're doing with uh, within our public educational institutions. And so college sports are not are not actually in practice or in principle relegated to the margins of American society, nor to the margins, I think, of, of the discipline, or cer certainly so we so we argue or so we think. Um, but that but that in, in framing them in those ways, it helps to, you know, to bring to bear and to bring to the center these conversations around Title IX to some of the some of the, the the really important stakes for um, democratic inclusion and for gender equality uh, and gender equity that I think are um, certainly are very salient, but that can be um, obscured or sort of shunted aside if we don't think carefully about what's really going on and if we don't frame those conversations with the uh, with the sort of diligent frameworks that are available from scholars. Um, including those in political science that can give us the leverage to do that. Let's turn to the book, uh, and you the, the 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 central the starting point for your book is is captured in the title, "Equality Unfulfilled." And watching, oh, I don't know, many men's teams wearing um, uniform jerseys that have Title IX on them or other things that might surprise the casual observer. So maybe we could start by just, and I'll ask Libby to start this. Um, what is your case for the idea that the promise of Title IX has gone unfulfilled? Sure. So, um, so, so we tackle this in a number of ways um, in, in the book, and I think one of the one of the things that gives us some um, traction on this is actually working with the data that are produced annually by every college and university in the country as a as an act of compliance with federal law under the Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act, um, every college and university in the country has to report on a series of metrics their um, spending and athletic opportunity and scholarship allocation practices um, to the federal government. 
those are collected by the Department of Education, and then those are made public um, to any American, actually really anybody with access to the internet, um, to take a look at what happens at, uh, at institutions across the country. These, uh, these do not map precisely onto the mandates under Title IX, but a lot of them come quite close. And so, um, so we see this as a real rich data source in assessing what's going on across institutions around the country at all levels of competition, uh, which is to say, you know, for viewers or for listeners rather who know a lot about college sport, you know that there is great variation in the um, spending and resource allocation practices. There are some institutions that spend tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars annually on their athletic programs um, and others that spend substantially less. Um, but what Title IX does say is that regardless of how much money is spent, it, it is to be spent equitably um, on matters of sex equity. And we can, we can talk a lot about the sort of actual rules about what that looks like, but we were interested in, in taking a look just in the weeds, in the data, what's actually going on um, 50 years after Title IX um, was passed, right? What are colleges and universities across the country actually doing in terms of their participation opportunities as allocated to, uh, to athletes on men's and women's athletic teams, their scholarship opportunities as allocated to, um, to men and women athletes, and their spending practices. And what we find when we unpack those data is that um, on all of the measures that we assess at, at every level of sport, um, inequality is really the defining characteristic of practices around the country. There's variation across what that inequality looks like in terms of the different metrics and, um, and, and the extent of that inequality varies based on the sort of level of play. The sort of worst inequalities, especially on spending differentials are at the, what we might think of as the highest levels of sport. That is to say the NCAA division one or FBS football bowl series institutions. These are the, these are the schools that spend the most on their men's football programs. They also are in a position to sign the biggest television contracts to earn the most money from the sort of cultural status of their programs in the public eye, right? So we could talk a lot about the funding streams that render these spending possibilities. Um, but as a matter of practice, right, the sort of the, the, the punchline is that inequality in opportunity and in spending um, is the status of things. And it, it isn't by it isn't by a sort of marginal amount. Um, there are substantial differences in the resources and opportunities that disproportionately benefit men in sport. And that's true, not just in the spending and opportunities, but also in the athletic leadership uh, positions. In coaching and in athletic administration, men continue to hold a disproportionate amount of um, coaching appointments, including on women's teams. And that is a reversal of the trend that existed in the years before Title IX was passed. In those years, uh, the case that many more teams that, that were reserved for women athletes were coached by, uh, by women coaches. And that trend has really reversed. It is now the case that, um, that, that men coach the predominant, or that male coaches um, uh, hold at the head coaching level and increasingly at the assistant coaching level as well, uh, a predominant number of those coaching opportunities. And as you climb higher up the athletic administration ladder, right, those, those, um, those women occupy 
a, a smaller and smaller proportion of leadership appointments. And so the leadership structures of college athletics are really disproportionately and increasingly so sort of winnowing out um, women into those appointments. And so, you know, Title IX doesn't speak to changing the leadership structures of college sport, but there we are suspicious of a structure that suggests that um, that suggests a narrative that equality has been a real outcome of Title IX's implementation in the face of data that show, again, data that is self-reported by every institution in the country and that we are standing back and sort of observing um, and, and assessing, right, that, that demonstrates instead that, that actually what's happening on the ground um, is, is far from equality. Yeah, I can build on that if um, that's all right. Um, so I, I think that was just an eloquent description of, of kind of the objective status Title IX, which then kind of raises this question or raised this question to us of um, you have Title IX, it, it is often celebrated as, as it should be if, if you think about the status of, of women's athletics in 1971 and you look at it in 2023, um, you know, there's been dramatic growth. Um, I guess our point our, one of our starting points kind of was to look at everything that Libby just described and kind of have the simple kind of mental exercise of saying, why would we want to be using a starting point, not only that is more than 50 years old at this point in time, but also one that was of complete exclusion or not, or, or near complete exclusion. Um, and, and hence our, our emphasis on equality. Um, and, and, and people often mistake Title IX as suggesting that equality is fulfilled, that, you know, we have Title IX, therefore women's women's sport opportunity have expanded dramatically and therefore things are, are pretty equal. But then when you look at the figures that Libby described, you see these massive gaps. And I, I think one of the most striking ones um, is if you just look at participation rates over time and you do see this, this you know, monotonic increase in women's opportunities starting in, in the 70s, um, you also see an equally monotonic rise in men's opportunities. And so the gap has, has really not shrunk in the last 50 years. And then you can go through all different metrics. And so I think this comes back, um, Kelly, to your very um, insightful question earlier about what does political science have to add to this exploration, was that left us asking why exactly have these gaps remained and they seem so unmovable um you know we can look at the policy we can look at the policy implementation and we can look at the policy debates and there are, as with most public policies there is enough gray area that that you don't actually know what the outcome will end up being and in this case it ended up being that the gaps have remained kind of steadfastly and that raises the question of why. Um, a lot of people have focused on, and perhaps we'll get back to this, focused on, well, we need to, we need to enforce Title IX more aggressively, um, which I, is, is a fair point because it is not enforced um, particularly aggressively. Um, but we felt that there was something more fundamental at work. And so we wanted to really dive into uncover what is it about the institutions around sports um, specifically um, that affect the stakeholders and what they think. Why aren't the stakeholders kind of activating for greater equality? Like what, what is it um, that's, that's underlying their opinions and their efforts 
um, and how are the institutions that regulate how sports proceed affecting those those opinions and efforts. And so I think that was kind of what we wanted to do in the book, and and that's that's what we sought to uncover. Um, it's kind of getting into the why um, of 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 why equality has has remained in our mind and and i think objectively completely you know unfulfilled um because you know the the gap from the the, the mid 70s to the to today in participation is is pretty much the same and so um so, so you identify three sets of stakeholders or potential change agents um college athletes uh which you talk about from below um college administrators um, collegiate administrators, and then the general public. So can you just, as a kind of 30,000 feet introduction, can you talk about why you focused on those three groups of people and how you're defining them? Uh, and Jamie, I'll just give you the chance to go first. Sure, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I think those are three entities that are, are clearly affected by the implementation of Title IX and college sports more generally. Uh, student athletes obviously are as as they are the participants and the ultimate stakeholders, really. Um, they're they're directly affected. Um, athletic administrators are are affected insofar as they're charged with implementing policies, not only connected to Title IX, but also the policies that their campuses and universities or conferences or um, um, the NCAA, which was our focus, was NCAA schools dictate, which, you know, may or may not, you know, they, there's nothing preventing the NCAA or universities or conferences from implementing um, more aggressive equality expectations. Um, and so the administrators are charged with that. And then we looked at the public and, and specifically amongst the public are, are the public and then also within the public um, college sports fans. Coming back to Libby's very important point earlier that she mentioned is that ultimately a lot of tax dollars are going um, um, to this, so that they are a constituency for any public policy. Um, and then college sports fans are the consumers, and so they're they're a market base. And obviously, market plays a large role in a lot of the arguments around Title IX. And so, I think it was fairly straightforward for us to identify those as as stakeholders that were affected. Um, have a, an interest in women's athletics and this public policy. I think that one could have imagined a more expansive set. I, I think that the key set that we didn't investigate, at least to me, although we never actually talked about this per se. So, uh, um, but I, I, I think college presidents would be um, a, another set insofar as that they're, they're the ones who kind of compose a, a very powerful committee within the NCAA, um, which is, in the last two years is losing a lot of power for a variety of reasons that are beyond our book. Um, but that's a population that has a lot of a lot of power over what goes on. And we didn't look into them um, partially, I, I, I think, just due to access. I, I think that, they're, you know, realistically, we weren't going to get access to a, a, a sizable number of, of college presidents. I, I mean, I had informal conversations with the college president at Northwestern, but I think getting access college presidents give authentic answers to the types of questions that we were we we're asking um was was unlikely and, and probably not worth the the effort um yeah yeah you know we we were also interested in i think mapping on some sort of theories of policy change to 
um, to the various understandings of how that might happen that exist in the literatures of um, political science, but also just the public's understanding about how we might expect Title IX to be fully implemented, right? And I think there is a notion, we see this come up and we we we, we play this out um, in the book in some ways, just to remind folks that actually when moments of inequality come to the front of the frame um, for the public to sort of reinvest in the question of the extent to which women athletes are treated the same as men in um, in athletics, but in college sports specifically, in moments um, like the, the, uh, the, the women's basketball tournament um, a couple of years ago, when it became very clear based on right the athletes and the media sort of self-reports of, of what was actually going on at the two tournaments and how disparate the treatment of the athletes really was. There, there are ideas that I think come up in um, public conversation that do actually map into sort of questions or theories of change in the literature. We wanted to make those connections. But the, those ideas in short are sort of that like maybe if the athletes just point out the problem and come together as a group and use the mediums that we think might exist for um, protest or problem definition, right? In this case, in that moment, it was social media, right? To say like, hey, look, everybody, this isn't right, that that might be enough to prompt change from the bottom up. Or that leaders might sort of say, oh, wow, we do see, you know, we do see what you're talking about, or we we ourselves feel prompted to lead uh, more assertively that, you know, that they feel endowed with a sense of responsibility of, of leading for change from the sort of top down. And that, you know, the public, I think, imagines that when they hear statements from uh, from leadership, let's say, in the NCAA, or if we take a look at like other instances where uh, where, where inequality is exposed on individual campuses, that when you hear athletic directors say, you know, oh, it's right, like we did wrong and we're, we're, we want to do better in the future, we'll, you know, we'll lead better from the top, that that actually might present an opportunity for Title IX to be uh, more fully implemented. And that, that that sort of can satisfy the public's expectation that perhaps all that we really need is for these moments of urgency to emerge, right? From the bottom up, from the top down, or maybe it is the fact that we just need the American public to shout louder, right? To um, to be more invested. Maybe it's the case that we just need fans to push for more change from the outside in. And that if, if doing so, right, we might see Title IX better implemented because of demands from those who are, who exist outside the system. And that, that really what we just need, you know, in those moments is for, let's say, you know, more people to take action on social media to for the public outcry to be louder. That will be enough to prompt some some sort of change. And I think those stories exist as a sort of um, spectacle of fantasy in the public's imagination around what it's going to take. And so we see that we see those both as important narratives to name and to interrogate, but also that they that actually those aren't just sort of stories that we tell. They 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 are. They map onto sort of ideas about how we think uh, policy change might happen. Um, and, and then so the readers can take a look at the book and see how we actually engage with that um, for, for scholars to for, uh, for scholars who are interested in thinking about how we're working with the literature on that. But um, but we think there's something there both in the public space and in the scholarly space as well. Well, there's space here for some a question you didn't ask, which is to think about why some moments um, to use the uh, colloquial term go viral and do make a difference and, and similar moments where people illustrate inequality for some reason don't go viral. I remember for you, you talk a lot in your book about the Sedona, I think that's how I, I pronounce her name, Prince um, 
video of the weightlifting quote unquote facility at the women's basketball tournament. I remember being approached by a young softball player who was in my class to tell me about the fact that when she had played in the facility in Oklahoma City and there were no there were no bathrooms available to the players, they had to run up into the stands to use the public facilities. And of course that story did not go viral and did not make a difference. But that's not the question your book asks. Let me, I, I'm gonna give you the painful question, which is, for a podcast audience, can you talk a little bit about your methods? How did you try and collect data and why did you decide to do it the way you did? Sure, I can give it, I can give it a go. And Jamie, um, Jamie will surely back me up and um, correct anything if I, if I mischaracterize uh, my, my brief attempt. So we, um, we went for the hard route in this book um, because, uh, because we thought that to, to draw back to some of um, my earlier comments that I think that, that we both thought that there was a real absence of um, social science research that really made the connections between the tools and methods that social scientists use in lots of other spaces, especially public opinion research um, that relies on um, quantitative methods to assess um, public opinion on, on a range of, for our purposes, um, policy opinion, right? we needed to, or we decided that what we wanted to do was apply some of those um, tactics to actually talk in a meaningful and representative way with the stakeholders in college sport. So in order to do that, we had to figure out how to reach um, literally what we hoped would be thousands of, uh, of, of folks who are currently active as participants, as athletes, as coaches, as administrators. And then maybe I'll bracket the, the, uh, the chapter on, um, on the American public, because for that, we, we do a fairly traditional nationally representative of, uh, of folks and then, uh, and then, and then do some particular analysis of um, college fans. But for the, for, for identifying the stakeholders, um, we, we, we owe a lot of uh, a lot of uh, of thanks to RAs from uh, both of our home institutions for um, for undergraduate and graduate students at UMass Amherst and at Northwestern um, for helping us identify um, all of these um, athletes and coaches and administrators who are um, who are sort of public figures in some ways and have um, have names and faces on athletic department websites that we were able to um, to identify and then match with publicly available um, contact information to collect a, a huge um, potential group of sort of using the language of social science research as sort of population um, and from which we did some direct solicitation. Um, we developed an extensive um, uh, survey that included a bunch of, of different issues, namely what you see in the book are, are, are a host of questions around gender equality policy issues. Um, and then we solicit participation from, um, from thousands of these potential stakeholders who then have the option you know, of responding to our survey um, and, and agreeing to, um, to participate online um, and, and basically help us build the data set. Um, we then have to make a set of decisions on how to analyze those data. And, um, and we have a pretty extensive appendix that researchers or, or interested interested folks can see online about how we made some of those decisions and a lot more detail about what we actually did um, methodologically um, uh, in, in tracking these folks down. But this was this was actually a multi-year process to, to build 
the data set, um, uh, the, the sort of multiple, we, we went out into the field, so to speak, multiple times in order to, in order to, to get to, um, to the final set of data that we analyze in the book. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jamie, what, do you, what would you like to add to all yeah, of that? I, I thought that was a perfect description. Um, I'll just add a, a few a few points. Um, it was we used um, public directories on, on college websites, which we were fortunate at the time we, we started around 2017, 2018, gathering these, these information more websites than not allowed access to had publicly available email addresses for um, student athletes and and that has kind of gone gotten less and less over time um, in terms of schools um, blocking access to email accounts and i think students also are less on email so we were a little bit fortunate insofar as we were able to kind of leverage access and and we got a reasonably fair number of, of people who actually responded to our invitations because we were asking people to complete basically 15-minute surveys um, with no compensation. Um, we weren't compensating them. Um, you know, we emphasized authentically that we were interested in what they thought about their experiences as student athletes or as coaches or as athletic administrators. And, um, you know, we launched it. And as always with these types of endeavors, you get a lot of responses and feedback. And I will say from the... Um, student athletes and, and coaches, in my memory at least, is that all of the people, most people don't email back, they do the survey or they don't, but those who did were, were mostly very positive and appreciative that we were exploring these issues. The administrators were more of a mixed bag. Um, some of them wrote kind of defensive, responsive, kind of, kind of why are you doing this? Um, but we still got a, a good number of respondents and so it went very well. The only thing I'll add, um, um, beyond Libby was in, in terms of writing the the actual questions that we asked. Um, this was really a, a, a an experience of where I, I I think collaborative research endeavors it really exemplifies how important they can be. Insofar as that I have a, a fairly extensive per background in writing and kind of how to do that, and I, I knew. You know a little bit of you know about the questions to be asking and 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 those kinds of things um but you know libby has you know is probably the world expert on title nine um and that's no exaggeration and to kind of get the right questions that capture the 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 policy debates that were going on at that moment in time and to do that accurately given that you have finite space to be asking questions is something that you need to have access to some expertise 
um, that very few people have and that you wouldn't be able to, to even from a secondary reading. Like you really needed somebody who was in those policy debates and Libby has an advocacy life. Um, and so I, I, I just remember very vividly kind of going back and forth on the actual questionnaire development and, and kind of how much that evolved and, and what a, you know, a unique process that was to kind of get those questions kind of right in the end. Um, and then we were able to ask those same questions of for every population, which was key to what we were doing because we wanted to compare across populations. Um, and then finally, for the public survey, we we did, as, as Lee mentioned, we hired a, a vendor that provides a, a nationally representative sample of respondents. And then we asked um, probably far more than we needed questions to kind of kind of figure out if they were fans of college sports, because um, there is this very large literature uh, of ways to measure fandom. Um, and um, so we put on kind of all kinds of fandom items. Um, and, and so we were able to kind of differentiate people who thought of themselves as college sports fans or not, which was part of our, our, our analyses. But that was that data collection effort was definitely um, a lot less strenuous um, than, than because we basically um, you know, had the resources to pay the vendor to collect the data and there were, you know, it was a much easier um, process. The first core chapter then of the book asks this question about what, whether college athletes could or would or maybe can and will mobilize to demand change. And you do that by, approach that by looking at student attitudes and the structures in which they live that shape those attitudes. Um, so, and I'll just ask Libby to start, what, what kind of hypotheses did you start with? Um, and what did the data tell you about this? Sure, so, um, so I, I mean, I, I really like all of our empirical chapters, but I really think that this chapter is one that I hope folks uh, think about really carefully because among the things that we, in some ways, what we are doing with this chapter is pointing out some of the features of college sport that I think are hidden in plain sight and our, are also dramatically impacting um, how uh, all sorts of things with respect to Title IX's implementation, both directly in terms of how athletes experience their athletic time um, in college, but also sort of longer term impacts and the cultural life around Title IX. So let me sort of unpack um, of what I mean a bit by that. Um, we we start from an, a real understanding around what athlete life is like um, on college campuses. And I think, again, this varies a bit depending on the level of competition, division one, two or three, but it remains the case that college athletes are, um, significantly live significantly different lives than college students and those lives are conditioned heavily on their commitment to athletic participation to the amount of time that they spend in training in uh in recovery in travel in competition um, with their teammates and um and so we knowing that um having you know having for me having lived that life as a as an athlete and a coach um, and understanding how much that that really conditions all sorts of experiences, um, we we came we came to this chapter in understanding the sort of conditions of possibility for policy change, in light of an understanding that like that those were likely to have some impacts, um, and, and we hypothesized that those impacts would include uh, potential impacts on gendered policy attitudes. So what are we doing with that? Well, we are 
we're interested in, in drawing on a longstanding literature on what is known um, among social scientists as contact theory, which, which in essence suggests that um, some forms of attitudinal change, and we want to suggest um, for our purposes, policy change can be related to um, intergroup contact, that is to say groups that are conditioned on um, across the literature, sort of various um, types of social groups can be impacted by the amount of time and the quality of time that, that groups, different types of groups spend in contact with each other. So we're thinking here about the sort of hyper definition of group difference that is that is just foundational to the notion of sex segregated sports, right? College sports creates teams for men and women. Um, and it this is actually a policy initiative of Title IX. In many ways, this is, this is one of my main interests in coming to the project. It's one of my main um, critical prerogatives in us in thinking critically around Title IX, because I think this is actually not a sort of natural outcome. It's a policy negotiated outcome that um, that I have written about in other contexts that I think we have accepted as the natural order of things, but it but it needn't be or it might not be if we thought creatively about renegotiating it. So that said, right, it is it is not just that athletes spend a lot of time with their teams. It is that in many those teams are sex segregated experiences. And so college athlete life is not only different from college student life, it is often different because it means that they spend an inordinate amount of time in sex segregated environments. And that for issues of gender equality in a college athletic structure that we know is wildly unequal in terms of resource allocation on dimensions of gender, there are all sorts of possibilities around how um, knowledge exists or how sex segregation structures knowledge and also sort of political possibilities for uh, mobilizing around knowledge for those resource inequalities that we thought um, could be a part of the puzzle around why change does or doesn't um, emerge from college athlete populations. So our basic our basic um, notion was here that we needed to understand right whether we were right that um, that that college athlete um, time was spent, that sex segregation really was structuring how time was spent in these dramatic ways. And of course, we also then needed some notion of variation, right? It, sex segregation is in many ways um, a sort of totalizing system, but it isn't but it doesn't exist for every team in precisely the same ways. There are also a lot of teams in college sport that actually train in relatively sex integrated environments. So we're thinking here about sports like track and field or swimming and diving, where the teams may spend a lot of time training together, even if they don't compete in, um, in integrated um, competitive environments, they spend more time socially. Um, and so we ask a lot of questions in the survey around how much time athletes spend um, in in integrated environments, and we and we see um, in our analysis that there is variation on that question. Um, we also do a secondary confirmatory study in which we use a survey experiment that that uses a, a, an imagined contact experiment, which. I don't know how much we want to get into the weeds here on all of that, but we we confirm this in a couple of ways in, in asking athletes to actually assess this contact question. Um, and the upshot, and then and then what we are, and then we ask them also in the survey a bunch of different questions on uh, policy initiatives related to gender equality. And the upshot of what we find is that um, particularly among men who spend much of their time in sex segregated environments where again they are spending a lot of their time 
living, training, socializing with uh, with male teammates. They they are not necessarily hostile to um, to to the notion that right gender inequality is real or that inequality right ought to be addressed, but they are they are less interested in the possibility of pursuing that change than are women athletes as a group or are men who spend more time in integrated environments. And so if we think about uh, male athletes as a potential group of allies in a system where women athletes as a group may need more than just their own sort of coalitional or their, their own interest to push for change. They may need a coalition of interests that include groups of, of men, male athletes within that structure to push for change. We Our, our, our basic finding here is that the the lack of contact in a sex segregated system that is that is promoted under Title IX um, and is ostensibly promoted as the sort of equitable solution to the problem of sex discrimination is actually creating the conditions for uh, for for coalitions to become less emergent, where right men are poorer potential allies because. They don't see the nature of the problem in the same way as those who are most apt to to experience it. That is, that is women who are who are more likely to experience the downside of inequality. Um, and so, right, it 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 casts sex segregation as a policy solution. I think in a very different light, right? And it makes it, to my mind, it it illustrates that um, that there is something. Um, there is something potentially more nefarious going on in that structure that we ought to be um, at a minimum much more skeptical of um, because of the consequences that we reveal um, are, are happening and that we also think you know, are at stake in, in the possible uh, political futures for, for how policy is operating, but also in the possibilities for political mobilization um, within college follow up real quick. Um, I'm curious, I, you've got a ton of data, which I have not had time to really look at, unfortunately. I wonder if you saw differences between D1 and D2 and D3 pro programs. Um, and here for those listeners who are not in the United States, remember D1 is generally speaking the largest and D3 is the smallest. And I say that because I've taught at all three levels. Um, well, NAI, but that's too sophisticated. Uh, and what I see at the smaller schools that are poor is it is much more common for teams to travel together, to use common training rooms or weight rooms, to have the same coach coach both women's and men's. For instance, here, the same coach coaches both women's and men bowling and women's and men's golf and tennis. Do you see any evidence um, that would suggest that that hypothesis, that the approach you say is confirmed by different kinds of attitudes among students at D2 or D3 schools who spend more time together? Yeah, we, we, we do. It's, 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 it's a two-step process, though, insofar as our primary way to look at the impact of that contact or interaction is to have directly asked people how much time they spend yeah. um, with, with student-athletes um, on, on other sex teams. And... Um, so that's the direct variable, but we do see, as you would expect, substantial differences in that time based on division and based on sport. So, you know, like in gymnastics and track and field and um, swimming and diving. I'm sorry, I'm, actually, I'm not, I can't recall if gymnastics or not. Swimming and field for sure. 
you see dramatically more time spent together. And the more time spent together means that they have the male student athletes have more progressive gender equity attitudes. Mm -hmm. And so, and you find the same sort of dynamic, definitely at division three. Um, I'm not recalling the division two effect um, directly. We actually, it's, it's, it's something we don't directly discuss in the book um, that we, we probably should have mentioned. Um, but I, I do recall looking at that and, there was, as you would expect, a, a pretty clear differentiation in amount of time spent together from Division Three versus Division One, um, for sure. I wanted to add one other yeah. small. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to add one small addition to kind of Libby's answer about the impact of of sex segregation. Um, in addition to recommending people look at Libby's other work on on the topic because um, it it really is foundational, and, and we were building upon that. Um, is that we also find in the public, amongst the public chapter, and I think this is an, uh, one of the more interesting findings, is that um, men who played high school sport, competitive high school sports, were expressed um, less so less progressive gender equity attitudes. And so the 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 the, the rationale this this is a finding that would certainly need more um, probing. But the explanation that that we think is going on is that. It, Participating in high school sports at a key socialization point of life is a normalizing um, view of, of kind of what sports looks like, and and it carries through through the, the lifespan. Um, and so we, you know, I think that's a that's a a really a way that I had not previously thought about a way that the the sex segregated institutions um, could operate, but they could have this very long term socializing effect. Um, and just to kind of sit back for a moment, because I, I often get when describing the book, and, and you, you kind of talk about this, the men's and women's sports are separate, um, and, and people, that's such a normalized expectation. And, you know, I, I, I think it's important to mention two elements to that, um, or three elements to that. One is, along the lines that Libby said, is there, it is a continuum. I, I, I mean, you know, you can go all the way from having completely integrated teams that that don't even think about um, gender identity and and just you know based on some other criteria. Um, you know, this is kind of what happens in the Paralympics, as far as I understand it, for a lot of sports that there's a lot a big ability element based on your physicality, um, for example. Um, but you can also go to kind of integrating practice facilities or integrating time together, and so there is a continuum there. Um, the second point um, is simply to kind of step back for a second and think about other domains of life. And it's very hard to think of another domain of life where there is such strict segregation um, based on a demographic attribute. Um, and so I think that is just something that one should think about when thinking about what is kind of seen as normalized. Um, and and um, the third point is, is simply to kind of think about coming back to the first point somewhat, is there are other ways one could organize uh, of sport. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think that's important. And then also, because our focus is specifically on college sports, you know, I, I think there's a broader kind of philosophical question of the purpose of college sport. Um, but, you know, that that might be getting far afield. Um, I just asked my students to read uh, as part of a Title IX activity that, that we were chatting about before this, they read an article from the 60s by uh, an author named uh, 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 Brenda Feigen, which reminds them that there is this kind of vibrant debate 
around the time Title IX emerges about whether sex segregation is the appropriate model. And that debate fades away and, and has recently, I think, reemerged. I talked to Susan Ware on this program, oh, I don't know, several years ago, and she has started talking about this. Um, I wonder, and I know this is not your research, I, I, I wonder if you know anything, youth sports has changed so much. High school has been so, so much less emphasized than it used to be in favor of club sports. And club sports are far more sex segregated than would have been true a long time ago when people at the age of 10 or 12 would have been playing on the playground or in middle school. Um, and this may just be a something I'd love to see somebody look into, but I wonder if that is, as, as you say with high school, one of the ways attitudes toward expectations about what sports should look like get, um, get put into people's minds early in their lives. Um, this, I, I wanna make sure we at least get a little time to talk about the second and third core chapters. And so you look at college administrators and coaches next um, as a possible place where people might support change. Um, and you come up with what I think is to people who haven't thought much about this or looked at the literature, something of a counterintuitive conclusion which is that women in high level positions who are probably best placed to lead change may not be as motivated to lead change as people in lower positions. So first, and I guess I'll just ask Jamie, am I representing those conclusions correctly? And second, if that's so, why do you think that is? Yes, I, that was that was accurate. And, and our, our kind of theoretical expectation even, even going in was one based on work in organizational culture where people, especially from um, demographics of, that are, are underrepresented amongst the organization, um, which is certainly the case um, in, in college sports. And as Libby mentioned, the, the, the statistics on college coaches of women's teams is, is really remarkable. I, I think I'm, these numbers might not be quite accurate, but I think prior to Title IX, it was upwards of 75 to 90% of women's coach, teams coaches were coaches. And in our data, I think it was 26% were head coaches. Um, and the, the theory is basically that to adapt to the cultural expectations in the workplace, um, the people, especially from subjugate, subjugate, subjugated um, groups are likely to kind of alter their, their preferences and even their values. And so, um, as you move up the hierarchy and you become more and more entrenched into an organizational culture, you would be expected to kind of adapt to the, the preferences of that culture. Um, and this is, there's a, a kind of in a distinct line of work, there's um, work called the queen bee effect, which is, you know, even a little bit more exaggerated than that. Whereas um, women sometimes, because it is such a hard process to get to points of leadership that when they arrive there, um, they become very almost protective of other women um, becoming in, in that, which is, you know, also similar to a, a yet another theory which could explain this, which is, you know, kind of uh, and the idea of, of kind of I've been through that, so therefore you need to go through kind of the difficult times. Um, and so I think all of those perspectives can adequately explain um, why that is occurring and um, why we actually had expected it to occur um, prior to data collection. So you look at this, um, do you, are there, you, you 
propose at least a couple of solutions, or, or um, maybe not solutions, but practical measures that might help college administrators, athletic administrators become change agents. You talk about adapting a version of the Rooney rule. Um, so maybe Libby, you can just talk about from this chapter, what, what reforms would you advocate or what changes do you think we should make? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think we're we are uh, we're, we're we're troubled by the the real occlusion of women from um, from these leadership roles. You know how they occupy them, um, what they do with them remains to be seen. But I think I think there's just something fundamentally flawed with a system that operates um, continues to operate right, dominated by male leadership and. Um, with such an androcentric culture that something is reproducing um, that not, not only those male leadership structures, but that notion that inequality is a perfectly, you know, perfectly fine um, functional outcome of a system that 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 actually has higher requirements than that under federal law, right? So we sort of think that. It, that the that the that the that the the form has to change and and then we hope the function can as well as a consequence and so so we we propose um, possibilities that some of this could be changed in models that we draw that are that exist in other um, areas of sport including professional athletics that like the NFL that has that stipulates um, rules for the sort of final set of the interview pool for various um, leadership positions, including head coaches. And we suggest these could be used for administrative positions as well that suggest that, right, at a minimum, you could you could imagine a sort of policy, uh, a policy prescription that suggests that you can, that it would be illegitimate or sort of against um, policy under potentially Title IX, under potentially university policy. Like there's a lot of particular, we, we equivocate a, get, a bit about it precisely where this could be implemented, right? Because we think, the actual agents of change could be located in lots of places. This could come from the NCAA. This could, again, come from individual institutions, could come from the federal government changing law, um, but that but that we could change hiring practices. And that could really happen at the moment of, uh, of what a final interview pool needs to look like. And that that could include such things as the requirement that women be a part of those, um, those final interview pools for leadership appointments. And that um, that sort of stepwise intervention may uh, may in principle sort of change the outcome of who actually ends up being considered um, for as as likely candidates for some of those um, coaching leadership appointments and mid and high level administrative leadership appointments as well. And, you know, we think this is a potential intervention that just um, disrupts the possibility of homophily of, you know, male leadership structures self-replicating themselves entirely. Again, is it the sort of the be-all and end-all silver bullet? Probably not, but it's a possibility and it's not it's not off the policy agenda, right? It exists where and could be applied um, in this context. So we think it's fe we think it's a feasible next step um, as well as um, as a tractable one. The third core chapter has to do with the rest of us, um, people outside of colleges and universities. Um, and as Jamie said, you used a, a, a survey firm to do some careful survey work with um, those people who are potential change agents who are stock stakeholders outside of the system. What did you find out, Jamie? I'm sorry, I missed. What, so if you're looking at the people that you surveyed, 
Oh, what attitudes did they have towards gender equity in universities, oh. and what potentials do they have for for change? Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I think there are a few interesting findings in that chapter um, uh, beyond the one that I mentioned earlier um, regarding early socialization. Yep. Um, one is so when we differentiate um, college sports fans from from those who are not college sports fans, you you do see a, a pretty dramatic difference in their attitudes towards gender equity, such that those who are identify themselves as college sports fans um, are substantially more likely to be not in favor of of of, of gender equity initiatives, and which I I I think basically comes out of the um, market expectations that they don't want to change to the product that they seem to enjoy. Because as it turns out, we we ask enough questions to be able to identify that most of the people who are who are who are reporting themselves as college sports fans are are largely college sports fans of of men's basketball and and football, and so they're on, almost synonymous with one another. Um, all of that said, when you look across the populations. The public, generally speaking, um, is fairly supportive of gender equity initiatives at, at a much higher level than one might anticipate. In fact, when you look across all of our data, um, there's a, a fair amount of support. There's more support than not support for, for most of the initiatives. And so in that sense, it, you know, I, I, I think the book we I think we answered the question we set out to answer insofar as that there are these institutions that are undermining the extent to which we would see a stronger push for gender equity institutions, including um, sex segregation, including organizational culture and who's filling those positions within leadership roles, um, market forces insofar as um, so much of the, the market is is pushing on onto men's sports, particularly the two sports that I mentioned before. And, you know, the college sports aren't aren't insulated from that market. So I think those institutions in, in every case are, are cutting into support for gender equity initiatives. But at the same time, there is there is a, a, a latent amount of support that is 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 substantial. And so the question then becomes how to translate that into actual policy, which I, I think is is kind of the the open question to go from here, and I think that's why we concluded the book with some of the suggestions that that you and Libby just spoke about about things that could be done um, to try to um, try to to obtain more more equity. Um, it's a even since we finished the book, though, this has all become complicated because change in college sports at this point in time over the last few years has been so fast and so chaotic that it's very hard to know what equilibrium it will settle into. Yeah. Um, and at least my reading and kind of watching these developments, it's been really disappointing the extent to which questions of gender equity um, and even kind of compliance with Title IX are absent from any of these discussions that have been going on with, with conference realignment, with, um, you know, to the extent that it comes up, it's basically pointing out that women's basketball teams and women's softball teams do really well in terms of name likeness and image um, funding. But nobody goes to the next step and, and says like, oh, therefore there's a, you know, a large constituency for, for, for those um, student athletes. Um, and so, so it's, 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 
it's a it's a it's a kind of a dizzying atmosphere at the moment. Um, yeah, I was going to ask. So I, I think you're so one of the things you talk about in in your conclusion is is trying to demarketize, decommercialize. I'm not sure what exactly the word is college sports. And I think broadly speaking, we can all easily agree that over time, historically, the role of media and market in college sports has been to privilege men's college men's college football and basketball. I am struck though by ways in which the two sports you mentioned seem to somehow have gained traction in part because ESPN, for example, seem to have decided that they are marketable, whether that's just generically or because there is an open month and a half in their schedule where they need something to fill it. Is there a way you can imagine marketization actually pushing some women's sports forward, even if it doesn't push all women's sports forward? I don't know the answer. I'm kind of asking you what you think. So I don't know. I see Libby responding. Why don't you start? Well, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, the short answer is yes, I want to believe that. And I think there's a lot of evidence that it's not just me sitting at a desk thinking like people are interested. If you build it, they will come like it's already been built and they're already there in a lot of spaces. I mean, I don't know if folks watched the um, the the uh, University of Nebraska women's volleyball yeah. program mm-hmm. over the past month, but they broke the <laughs> the single um, attend they, they shattered the single attendance record of over I think ninety thousand fans coming to watch uh, a, a, a women's sporting event globally. Right, and this was a collegiate women's volleyball game, and I mean, sure, yes. Nebraska volleyball, if you know Nebraska, you know volleyball, like mm-hmm. that's where it's at. But uh, but that's not to discredit, like that's not a that's not a sort of throwaway comment. That is to say that these markets do exist, these fan bases do exist, that that many people showing up for sports like volleyball are not only doing it in Nebraska. I mean, the University of Minnesota, well, I mean the Big Ten, frankly, volleyball, just as another sort of example, sells out um stadiums routinely for for the women's game and um you know women's basketball uh, we we now know as a result of the external evaluation of the of the women's tournament that was done in the aftermath of of the Sedona Prince moment right that the that the NCAA has been financially undervaluing market valuing the women's tournament as it as it shopped it out to um to potential uh, television broadcast contracts and so i actually think you know on the one hand, like I do think, I think the commercialization is a bar, is a part of the problem. But if you want to, but I also think that if we're going to tackle that argument, yeah, it it can be tackled head on, and that part of this does have to do with um, debunking the narrative that women that there is no market for women's for women's sports. And I think, you know, it's it the fan base might be a different fan base, or it, or there may be trade offs, right? That and I think it's a real open question about what the future of football, men's football is going to be yeah. in the US. Um, how long until that conversation evolves? Um, I don't know. But you know, there are there are major questions about sort of health and safety in the game that I don't think I don't think are moving forward or or leaving the sort of terrain anytime soon. Um, so you know, the, it isn't just that 
the sort of structures of sport are evolving, the sort of public conversations and the fan bases are as well. And I think, you know, to pick up on Jamie's point that like, what does it mean that these NIL contracts are being signed in large measure and in large amounts by um, women athletes? I think that tells us something about about something, right? That that they're that that in in a space that is highly commercialized, um, there you know there the television contracts aren't the only indicator of where where value lies. And I say that again, sort of talking out of both sides of my mouth, because I'm not sure that that's the direction that we want. That's like the most effective argument, especially when we're concerned about um, questions of equality and about you know for me, I think like non-exploitation of athletes in these really important moments. That said, it's a part of the conversation. And I think we can't shy away from um, grappling with it and pointing to the evidence that um, that can be obscured if people only ever read the news about men's football and basketball, and they just want to ignore what's actually going on in other sports and in other markets. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that, of, of course. I, I mean, I find it to be a difficult issue to discuss for myself because there are kind of the policy realities with Libby just eloquently touched upon. And then there's kind of the abstract philosophical questions, um, which are unrealistic in terms of kind of change to college sports. Um, you know, to me kind of circling back, you know, I guess we're at the end. So circling back to where I started, you know, thinking about at the start of the, our conversation about kind of, how sports can have these positive impacts on people's lives, but these negative impacts and my my kind of fear, especially having kind of taught at um, a division one institution for um, 20 years now, um, actually for 26 years because Minnesota as well and having a lot of student athletes is they are extraordinary individuals. Um, and I think the sport is often doing a lot for them, but I also think especially in the last several years um, it has become extremely difficult for student athletes. Um, they are now navigating, in addition to extremely difficult expectations in their sports and in academic life and in social life, um, potentially how do they profit off of their image? Um, even if they're disinterested in that, they have people coming after them to, to kind of sign contracts. Um, I think there's very clear evidence of severe mental strain amongst student athletes, especially student athletes with intersectional identities um, or student athletes that are, are from lower class backgrounds. And so I think those are the real concerns that need to be discussed with, with much clearer articulation um, than they have been. And you, you know that kind of reconceives a lot of the discussions that are going on about college sports right now. In fact, they're kind of the opposite of college sports um, discussions that are going on right now. You know, I, I think the, the conference changes that are occurring and you're going to have all these teams from all these sports traveling across the country regularly um, and how student athletes are expected to kind of navigate that. Um, I think that's an, you know, that people throw that question in there, but I, I don't know if they ever ask student athletes, systematically ask student athletes their perspectives on these things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I think the reality is exactly what Libby described. And I, I think you have to think about ways to think about the market and women's sports and how women can not kind of become more unequal given the changing realities of college sports. And then I just think that there's, you know, some 
hopefully there will be some thoughtfulness once things reach some equilibrium about what this means for the life of a student athlete and, and kind of the kind of their their mental health and you know the NCAA the last comment I'll make the NCAA puts out these reports regularly on how well student athletes do and kind of they excel professionally and they excel um, personally um, but what's always missing from those reports are the large number of student athletes who don't finish college as student athletes who, who they don't track and you know I, I don't know what that number is um, but I you know I, I think there's just a lot of concern you know ultimately I just will come back and end on saying the NCAA says its core mission is to use sports to enhance the educational experience of student athletes. And I just would wish that those who are designing policies and moving conferences and overseeing student athletes remind themselves of that mission um, more often and, and kind of ask themselves of how, how is this enhancing the educational experience of, of these individuals? Um, no, I agree entirely. I have a senior undergraduate honors student who's doing her thesis on burnout among college students at the D2 level. And she's only beginning it, but it is a remarkable reality of so many people who think of sports as a job and would not do it if they had the choice. But if we had more time, I would ask you about how political scientists deal with the Caitlin Clark contingency effect about how the sudden emergence of um, once in a lifetime, once in a generation um, stars impact the models, but, but that's maybe for a separate conversation. Uh, but I do wanna ask you um, the same question I ask everybody as we end interviews. And that is to say, I asked, um, ask you maybe to suggest a book or maybe a documentary or something something that we as an audience can go and read and, and learn more about what you were thinking about while you were writing this book. Um, and so Libby, I'll just let you start. Sure. Um, I'm going to say just a couple of things, because I yeah. think, you know, my thinking around the book is just as important as um, as 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 what the as what I think about Title IX. So so I have really just gained immeasurably from thinking, uh, particularly through feminist scholars who do work on um, more or less sort of feminist science studies who really are interested in interrogating what we think we know about notions of sex difference. And so I'm thinking of scholars like Katrina Carcasis and Rebecca Jordan Young and Fausto Sterling, who, um, who have really helped me develop my perspective um, that has sort of pushed me to think about uh, to, to interrogate notions of sex segregation as a suitable solution and how it isn't just the sort of ideas that are inherent there. It's actually the notions of science that are potentially problematically embedded behind them. So, so I want to give a nod to that tradition of um, of, of feminist studies and uh, and you know scholars in political science that have really grounded notions of studying group politics, um, like Dara Strolovich and Kathy Cohen, who have really given us a lot to work with in thinking critically about the relationships between group politics and power. Um, um, but then also specifically on Title IX, you know, I would say uh, several years ago back, actually over a decade ago, Eileen McDonough and Laura Papano wrote a book called Playing with the Boys that is um, is a, is a, just a, a really fantastic critical perspective for folks to read on the problem of sex segregation um, in Title IX. And um, I would recommend that to listeners who want to read more about this. I think it stands the test of time in, in thinking critically about this. Um, and then for a really contemporary take on like 
Title IX, more recent history, the 50th anniversary in 2022 just brought a lot of media attention uh, to the issue. And ESPN produced a four-part docu-series um, called 37 Words, which mm -hmm. is available now for streaming on ESPN+. Plus. And viewers, listeners can go and take a look at that series. I think the, the producers just did an outstanding job of covering both the historical grounding of the law and why it's passed and then the contemporary dynamics. They really bring a lot of this um, critical perspective to thinking about Title IX, what it, what it has accomplished and what it has been sort of unable to do on its own. So um, lots of different forms of, of media and thinking that I think are available around Title IX. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo all that and I will emphasize looking at the ESPN docu-series and, and Libby played a, a, a large part in those and, and is on those. And so I, I, I think you can learn a lot more about her perspective on, on things. And as I said before, and I don't mean to be gratuitous, but I mean, she is, really thought about this, these issues more than probably anybody. And so it's just, you know, for me, it's just been a, you know, remarkable experience to kind of learn from, from that over, over 20 years. And, and that series is remarkable for, for many reasons. Um, on books, also just three that really shaped my thinking a lot that are all in the sports domain. One is this project actually, when we began, we were, it was covering and the data actually cover both gender or sex and race. Um, and it, it, we have a whole set of analyses and some papers that cover race dynamics as well. And at some point we um, had the epiphany that that was just too much. Um, but it is something that I, I think about um, a lot in thinking about this. And I, I think part of the reason we, we thought it was too much was because it was becoming extremely difficult to think about the intersectional dynamics, particularly amongst Black women. Um, but along those lines, I, a book that is kind of I would recommend is it's, I think it's from 2006 by William Roden, who is a New York Times journalist called $40 Million Slaves, um, which is about college, Black college athletes and, and kind of gives that perspective. I think two books that that really affected me in the process of us working on our book, both on women's college sports. Um, one is by um, Kirsten Hextrom, um, Special Admissions, how college sports recruitment favors white suburban athletes, um, which just gives a really wonderful overview of the recruitment process and, and kind of the idiosyncrasies of college, women's college sports. And a book by Rick Eckstein called How College Athletes Are Hurting Girls Sports, The Pay-to-Play Pipeline, um, which I think gives a particularly useful treatment of, of football and um, uh, of, of kind of the role that football plays in, in, in girls sports and also um, talks a lot about high school, which which is an important part of the the story, of course. Um, so those are, are are books that that I would recommend and really enjoy. I have I have now some ways to postpone grading yet again. Um, I'm sure my students will be stunned. Uh, we have been talking to James Druckmann and Elizabeth Sherrow about their book Equality Unfulfilled, How Title IX's Policy Design excuse me, Undermines Change to College Sports, published by Cambridge University Press. Last question, Libby and Jamie, what are you working on now? What are we working on, Jamie? <laughs> well, I think in this domain we are we have we have been slowly working on, well, getting finishing the book and then yeah. um, there is a part of the book things that are not in the book where we ask in, in 2018 data collection, we ask about attitudes towards um, trans people in, in 
college sports. And so we have a bunch of data on that. And that was prior to the, the massive kind of prevalence of anti-trans legislation um, relevant to um, athletics. And so we are interested in, we can't return to the same respondents because we don't know who they are that was anonymous, um, but we can return to the same populations and kind of look to see um, if the dynamics underlying those opinions have, have substantially changed. And so I think that's something that interests us a lot. I mean, I think for for me personally, kind of coming back to what I said before, I thought when we were finishing this book that we would be more actively doing things in college sports. But honestly, I, I think it, it is not a great time. As I kind of said before, it is such a chaotic moment, I think, in college sports that I, I think it would it's very difficult to wrap your head around what it's going to look like in even a few months. I mean, the, two of the best teams and one of the major two of the best football teams, one of the major athletic conferences don't have a conference to go to next year. And so there's just yeah. all these kind of questions about the, the structure of college sports. And so um, I hope that we can kind of it'll settle and then and then it'll, we can kind of uh, uh, assess it's it's like every week it seems to be another kind of development and so it's and there's there's a new constitution for the ncaa yeah. that is kind of decentralizing their role and kind of what that's going to look like and what conferences are going to do it's just there's a lot of new institutions being put in place yeah yeah and there we're you know we're uh that's right you know we are i think we are uh, very interested in um, in weighing in on these questions around trans inclusion and thinking about the impact of the changing political environment. Um, again, through the lens of these durable institutions of sex segregated sports and the impacts that those are having um, on the sort of future of college sports for issues of gender diversity, but also for the sort of high stakes questions around gender equality. U.S. politics, that when we're thinking about questions for trans inclusion in sports, these are not just germane to the sort of narrow space of what, you know, Republican state legislators have been trying to claim. This is about like kids on sports teams. They are, right, making claims that really strike to the central issues about the future of gender equality in the U.S. and sort of pinning it on the domain of sports in ways that I think, um, you know, we, we are, we're using these data that we have and that we're um, that we're preparing to collect some more on to unpack, but that but that you know that I'm writing about in other areas um, as well, both from a policy perspective and from a historical perspective. I've I've published other sorts of policy histories that have that have asked us to think carefully about how we got to this moment, um, and I'm doing some other writing on that as well, so that we can, I think, continue to ground ourselves in thinking carefully about the questions that we're bringing to bear on on this chaotic moment, on the ways in which it can feel chaotic and on the sort of forces that are making us, um, that are attempting to make us feel destabilized and the reasons, you know, or the sort of, who, who are the folks who benefit from that, those forms of instability and who are the folks who, who are, who are sort of destined to, to be harmed. So I think there's actually a lot at stake and um, we'll do our best to stay in the mix in offering some grounded explanations. Well, I hope as you go on, you um come back and talk with us again on the channel. But in the meantime, um, best of luck. Um, have a great semester. Uh, and we will all wait together to see what college sports will look like in six months or a year or um, 
or in 10 years when all these conference contracts with TV networks are up again and the TV networks are not willing to pay. So, but for now, thank you so much uh, for spending time with us. Thank you so much, Kelly. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for all the, uh, all the shows that you do.